Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, everybody. What's going on? It's March 10th, 2017, and this is The Mixed Experience. And I'm your host, Heidi Durow, a mixed chick sharing her mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world that is becoming increasingly more mixed-up as we go. Uh, But today we're going to have a moment of clarity and sanity and fun with my wonderful guest, Adrian Miller, who's here to talk about his new book. But first, I have a couple of announcements. One is that there is this project that is my labor of love. It's called the Mixed Remixed Festival. It's a 501c3 nonprofit arts organization And we are going on our fourth year for the festival, which is happening on June 10th, 2017. This is the largest gathering of mixed race and multiracial people and families. And it's a cultural arts event. We have film screenings and readings and workshops and panel discussions and performance. And it's just really amazing. We are hoping to be able to announce our lineup and program very soon, but there are a number of very exciting developments happening in the background, and we just need to make sure we uh, have it all in line and arranged before we make the big announcements. So hang on to your hats. We are coming at you soon with information about the festival. Uh, Other news, I'll be at Auburn University next week speaking for the Women's Leadership uh, Keynote Luncheon. I'm very excited about that. I don't know if any of you guys live uh, near Auburn, but (laughs) if you do, I think uh, you can still sign up until March 20th to uh, get a seat at the table, and uh, I'll be there. I'd love to see you. All right, so on to our guest. I am super thrilled today to have on a friend of mine from back in the day at Stanford, and he has now surpassed me in book writing. He has double the number of books that I have, and I'm really thrilled to be able to share the story of this one, the newest one with you. But let me tell you a little bit about Adrian Miller first. He is a graduate of Stanford University, best school ever, and Georgetown University Law School. After practicing law in Denver for several years, Adrian became a special assistant to President Clinton and the deputy director of the President's Initiative for One America. This was a freestanding White House office, and it was created to examine and focus on closing the opportunity gaps that exist for minorities in this country. Just a really amazing program. Well, after his White House stint, Adrian returned to Colorado, and he worked in various capacities in politics there under Governor Bill Ritter, Jr., and he is currently the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. He's the first African-American and the first layperson to hold that position, but he is also, I think, most importantly, a culinary historian and a certified barbecue judge who has lectured around the country on topics such as black chefs in the White House, chicken and waffles, hot sauce, kosher soul food, red drink, soda pop, and soul food. His first book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, 
was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013, and it won the James Beard Foundation Book Award for Reference and Scholarship. His newest book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. It was published, quite fittingly, on President's Day this year. I am super pleased to welcome to the show today, Adrian Miller. Hey, Hi. yeah, great to be with you. Oh my gosh. Well, hey. so this book is so exciting. There are so many ways to start off this conversation, but I do have to give you my first traditional question, which is okay. what are you what are you? What am I? <laughs> uh I am African American. But yes. I do have I do have uh, some other blood in me. You're talking about just like genetically, right? However you'd like to answer it. Yeah, I mean, that's how confusing that question is, right? Yeah, I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that one. So, yes, I'm (laughs) African-American. Nice. You got it right. 100%. Good job. Um, All right. Thank you. So from there, you have created this wonderful book. It's a really, it's a great read. I mean, obviously, it's a piece of research writing, but there's so much to talk about in here. And I thought maybe we'd just start off with, the reason you decided to write the book to begin with, what was the spark and inspiration? Yeah, so um, the short answer is unemployment um, because I had just <laughs> come out of the Clinton administration <laughs> and um, I was watching way too much daytime television and I said, I need to read something. And so I went to the bookstore and I got a book on the history of Southern food by a guy named John Edgerton. And in that book, he said, the tribute to African-American achievement in cookery has yet to be written but he also mentioned a list of just different types of cooking jobs that African-Americans had dominated, and he listed White House cooks. So um, that book launched me on the journey to write the Soul Food book, and as I was reading through old newspapers and other things, uh, a few of these cooks jumped off the page at me. And so I said, oh, man, once I get done with the Soul Food story, I hope there's enough out there that I can tell the story of these White House cooks. Well, apparently there is. There's a whole wonderful book that you've written about it. Tell me, who among all of the portraits you have of the cooks of the White House, who's a favorite story for you? That would have to be Zephyr Wright. She was the longtime private cook for Lyndon Johnson, and uh, she started cooking for his family before he became a congressman and before he became president. But she really encapsulates the three themes of the book. One, that these uh, African-Americans were culinary artists who were celebrated in their time. They were often family confidants. So she sits in the inauguration box with the Johnson family when he becomes president. And I don't think any other cook has done that. And um, in a lot of cases, they were civil rights advocates. So Johnson would use her... Uh, Jim Crow experiences in the South to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And when he signs that bill, he gives her one of the pens and says, you deserve this as much as anyone. Wow. And you, I said also, in an yeah. interview, you said in an interview yeah. that these cooks gave white presidents a window on black life. And for those who chose to open the window, uh, you think our country is better for it. There's something yeah. really wonderful about this idea of these people being intermediaries for them, especially because they're cooks. And, and food really is, in, you have an intimate relationship with people who cook for you. Right. And, you know, the other thing that was interesting is uh, when civil rights leaders could not get the ear of the president, 
they would go to the cook and say, hey, could you talk to him about this or that? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, they were, they were often go-betweens. And so I just thought that was fascinating. And, again, well, you, you know, have, not all of the president. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say you have a ton of different great stories of people who were really fascinating, um, many of whom are of interest to me also because they were mixed race or biracial. Uh, one of the ones that stands out for me, obviously, is James Hemings, who was Sally Hemings' brother, half brother. Uh, she was one of his old, one of her older brothers. So she had two older brothers. So he was the second oldest. Well, tell us a little bit about James Hemings and his his experience with uh, Thomas Jefferson and the White House. So here's the interesting thing. Um, so Hemings, um, when Jefferson is minister to France. He brings a 19-year-old Hemings with him to France and, and spends three years having him trained as a classical French chef and paid a lot of money to do it. So once uh, Hemings went through that training, he actually installs him as his main cook while he, as a, in his Paris residence. So he ends up staying there until Jefferson comes back in the 1790s. And he cooks for Jefferson for a while while Jefferson is Secretary of State. But then ultimately he asks Jefferson for freedom. And Jefferson agrees on two conditions. One, that he has to cook the, uh, tr- uh, train the other enslaved cooks at Monticello on how to prepare all the food that he learned making while he was in France. And two, he had to leave behind his recipes. So he does this, wow. and Jefferson frees him. And they actually sign a contract and everything, which is pretty remarkable for that time. Because Jefferson really I, didn't I have to do stunned. it. I was just stunned. I was stunned by this story because, I mean, here we are talking about a man who is enslaved, who creates a cooking school. <laughs> and that has mm-hmm. to be the first time there was a, a cooking school created by someone of color in, in our country. That just is so fascinating to me. Yeah. And so, um, so now that Hemings is free, he kind of goes around. He goes to Philadelphia and Baltimore and other places. But he does somehow, for whatever reason, Jefferson talks him, back into, um, talks him into coming back to Monticello to cook, and he stays there for several months, but he leaves again. Now, Jefferson most definitely would have had him as the White House cook, but Hemings dies before Jefferson becomes president. And the believed reason is that he drank himself to death at the age of 31, so he kind of has a tragic end. But there's more scholarship coming to light about his story, so I think we're going to hear more about what actually happened to Hemings, but that's the story we know now. Well, I mean, it's it's a really fascinating story. And an, another story that I really keyed in on was the story of Laura Dolly Johnson, who worked under the Harrison administration. There was actually an announcement in the newspaper saying that she would be a cook at the White House. Why, why was that? Yeah, so um, I think it was just really because of all the hype around her. So she, to me, is a great example of a free African-American woman at the height of her bargaining power because she did not have to work at the White House. Most African-Americans who worked at the White House were accidental in the sense that they were either enslaved or just were happened to be the longtime cook of somebody who became president. So she's somebody that has to get wooed to come work at the White House. So um, a young Theodore Roosevelt was traveling around the country, and he had dinner in Lexington, Kentucky, with a guy named Colonel John Mason, and uh, John Mason Brown, and when uh, he eats the dinner, Dolly Johnson prepares it, and he was so floored by the meal that when his friend Benjamin Harrison becomes president, he says, hey, you're looking for a cook. You ought to hire this woman. 
And so she has such a reputation for cooking in Lexington that when she gets hired at the White House, it was a big deal. Now, there was only one problem. There was already a French woman who was the head cook at the White House, and she did not like the headlines. And so she had this very French cook had a very American response to the situation. She files a lawsuit <laughs> against the president. This is the first time a White House staffer sues the president. And then she goes to the press to dog out the Harrisons, talking about how they had poor eating habits and they ate pie all the time. Wow. Um, I, I thought it was good. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm just floored by these stories that we didn't know. And mm-hmm. there actually are documents out there for us to know them, but they've been lost. So I, I love that you found these wonderful people, like also in particular Hercules, who's on the cover of – is he on the cover of the book? Actually, I'm not sure now. Yeah, he's actually on the cover of the book. We cropped a photo out of a painting that's actually hanging in a museum in Madrid, Spain. And, uh, and the so, title of the yeah, painting – Yeah, tell us about yeah. Hercules. Yeah. So Hercules was the enslaved cook of George Washington – um, Washington purchased Hercules when he was a teenager. He was a ferryman, but uh, Washington puts him in the kitchen to apprentice under a longtime enslaved cook named Old Doll. So that's how Hercules learns to cook. And then when Washington becomes president and the executive residence is in Philadelphia, uh, there was a white woman named Mrs. Reed who was cooking for Washington, but he wasn't feeling her cooking. So he brings Hercules from Mount Vernon to Philadelphia to be the cook. There was only one problem. Philadelphia had, uh, and Pennsylvania had a law called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780. So if you were an enslaved person and you were in Pennsylvania soil for longer than six months, you were automatically free. So to get around that, Washington would pack up all the enslaved people right around the six-month deadline, take them back to Mount Vernon, leave them there for two weeks, and then bring them back to Philadelphia. And he does this throughout his presidency. How whacked is that? It, it's pretty messed up that they would go to such lengths to make sure that they could continue to enslave people who should rightfully be free to begin with. Um, but Hercules, yep. he, he continues in his service for a long time, but he actually ends up escaping. How, how did he manage that? Yeah, so um, by the time, by the end of the presidency, and one thing I should note is that Hercules was very well known for his food, and Washington gives him a lot of liberties. He lets them go to the opera. He lets himself leftovers out of the kitchen and Hercules was making 5,000 in current dollars selling leftovers out of the kitchen and uh, after meals he would wear a blue suit and walk around with a gold cane just around town so he was a well-known figure but when we get to the end of Washington's presidency Washington suspected that Hercules was going to try to escape and as a punishment he sends them to the fields in Mount Vernon not to the kitchen and so after toiling in the fields, Hercules had enough. And so on Washington's 65th birthday, Hercules runs away successfully. He's only seen one more time after that, but he just disappears, understandably, because Washington was a very vindictive guy. And if you know the story of Oni Judge, who was one of uh, Martha Washington's enslaved people, we know that Washington spared no expense in trying to retrieve uh, escaped slaves. Yeah, I mean, it's a horrific story. Do you have ideas of where he ended up, that he could have possibly gone overseas or just he hid in plain sight? Yeah, no one knows for sure, but the painting gives us some clues because if you look at the outfit that he's wearing in the painting, that is the outfit that a chef in Europe would wear, not one in the United States. So it's quite likely that he went overseas, and it makes perfect sense that he would do that because that – 
minimize the chances that he could be um, retrieved under the fugitive uh, slave law that Washington signed when he was president. So that's what people believe, but no one knows for sure. But yeah, he just kind of he disappears, yeah. He's a fascinating figure. I mean, I would absolutely love to see his story filmed one day. Yes. Uh, you know what? Several people have told me that, and I think it's right um, because the, the story is just fascinating, and what he was able to yeah. accomplish was just truly remarkable. One of the things you've done with the book is you've also included recipes here for us. Uh, how did you decide what to include, and do you have a favorite recipe in the book? Yeah, so what I tried to do was uh, compile recipes from the actual things that these uh, African-Americans cooked. Um, unfortunately, in the historical sources, there's just not a lot of uh, recipes credited to these African-American cooks. So sometimes I had to sleuth and just figure out, okay, this was something probably what the, uh, this is probably something that the African-American presidential chef made. So part of it is that. Um, then I looked for recipes inspired by uh, presidents that African, contemporary African-American cooks could also make. And then I included uh, the state dinner that was prepared for Nelson Mandela in 1994. Mm. So that was prepared by an African-American chef who would have become um, the White House chef under Clinton if it wasn't such a pay cut. Um, that was a guy named Patrick Clark who turned down the job because he was making way more as a hotel chef than he would as a White House chef. And then the last um, recipe I include was from uh, Kiana Farkish, who uh, what represented Colorado in the 2014 state dinner that Michelle Obama would have for kids. So Michelle Obama, starting in 2012, uh, had a healthy recipe contest, and kids around the country would create a meal and submit the recipes, and those that won would represent their state at a kid's dinner. Uh, and I, I felt it was a good way to end the book because I wanted to see to what extent the White House Kitchen still inspires. Well, these stories definitely inspire. What do you think people will get out of reading the book? I felt very touched by just having having you find these stories that were lost. That was really inspirational to me. But what do you hope people will get out of reading this? Um, first, I would just uh, hope that they get somewhat stunned and surprised by the sheer number of cooks that have prepared presidential food. You know, when I first started the project, there were only a handful of stories, but um, after doing some research, and I'm only scratching the surface, you know, I identified 150 people who have uh, comforted and, uh, you know, did their best to keep our presidents happy and healthy. Um, I also hope that people understand how much they were civil rights advocates and how much they did have a play in politics. I include the story of one woman named Lizzie McDuffie who actually campaigned for FDR in 1936 election and uh, went to eight cities where there were predominantly black populations. And after that 1936 election, um, Roosevelt calls her to the Oval Office and says, you know, thank you for all you've done. But I think the key thing I want people to understand is how, under difficult circumstances, these people asserted their humanity, especially at times mm. when the broader culture and even the president uh, himself did not recognize that humanity and how they were over, you know, how they were able to overcome so many barriers and, you know, excel at their craft. You you write about two young women who who worked in the White House as cooks, and I'm forgetting their names right now, but you write about how their husbands, who were back somewhere else working, uh, actually traveled at great expense to come visit them uh, while they were working in the White House. 
And what I was struck by was the fact that these people really, I mean, they, they toiled and they sacrificed so much and they have been erased until now. So again, I just, I think it's remarkable, this research that you've done. Yeah, the two people you're thinking of were two enslaved women who cooked for Jefferson. Uh, they were essentially what we would call assistant chefs or sous chefs today. But one was called Fanny Hearn, that was her nickname, and the other was Edie Fawcett. And their life was pretty much spent in the White House basement. Uh, they would cook in the kitchen, and then there were slave quarters right off the the main kitchen. And because of their enslaved condition, uh, you know, they couldn't really stray too far from the kitchen. And so for whatever reason... Jefferson, when he would leave the White House, because until 1950, the White House was a seasonal residence. Because if you spend any time in Washington, D.C. in July and August, you know you want to get the heck out of Dodge because it's just so (laughs) hot. Uh, But Jefferson would leave these women behind. So that's what prompted their husbands to try to uh, leave Monticello just to visit their wives. And Jefferson would intercept them before they even got there. Um, But they gave birth to children in the White House basement. Um, Some of their kids died. So you just see the full experience of humanity there playing out in the White House kitchen. And um, you see that even though, uh, you know, we have this president who's espousing the ideals of democracy and other things, it just wasn't practiced with the enslaved people that were working for him. Have you been able to share this book with our our President Obama, former President Obama? I have not, um, because the book came out after he left the White House, so I have to figure out how to get the book in his hands. Um, I did try to interview the cooks that worked for him, um, but I wasn't able to get access to them. So I do regret that that part of the book, uh, that part of the story is not told, but I do hope to get it to him, uh, and also to my former boss, President Clinton, just to see what they think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I won't go into asking you about the current administration. (laughs) That's where I thought you were going to go. I was like, oh, no, let me get ready. Let me get ready. (laughs) No, no, I I just don't need to know about that. Well, so, Adrian, you now have double the number of books that I have. You know, now I'm jealous. (laughs) What's next for you? Um, I have a couple of things that I'm floating around. I'm thinking about a children's book that would talk about all the people of color who have worked in the White House kitchen. Um, because what a wonderful idea. After, yeah. After African Americans, there have been a number of Asian uh, American cooks in the White House, particularly Filipinos. And there's a, there's a reason for that, but I wanted to share their story. I'm also thinking about a history of the African American barbecue tradition. Um, because if you look at food media now, you would never know that black people barbecue. Because it's pretty much all they show are white hipsters and bubbas. And <laughs> until very recently, if you're going to get top-notch barbecue, you're going to go to an African-American-run establishment. And so that's the yeah. book I think I really want to write next. And and then on that note, how do you become a certified barbecue judge? <laughs> that sounds Great like a question. boondoggle to me. That sounds like a boondoggle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great way to get free food. So uh, much like boxing, there are several sanctioning bodies at barbecue. And so I joined the Kansas City Barbecue Society because I thought understanding barbecue would help me understand soul food. So, so many soul food joints have barbecue and vice versa, right? Um, yes. But it's really about process. You go, you show up to this room. Um, there's somebody running it. They explain how a contest is run. They give you the categories. They tell you the sequence and they tell you the, the rating scale, 
And then they start bringing out food just to get, so you get the hang of judging. And then after that, you take a barbecue oath. It's a sacred thing, so I'm not going to repeat it over, you know, right now. <laughs> and then you get your barbecue badge in the mail. And then after that, it's up to you in terms of how much you want to pursue it. Because you don't get paid to be a judge, but you just reserve your spot and you get a lot Got of it. food. <laughs> it's a nice job if you can get it. I like it. I like it a lot. Exactly. Well, Adrian, exactly. I... I am so uh, glad that you took on this task. The book is fantastic. The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. And, uh, you know, I can't wait for you to keep on doing all of this wonderful research and work and sharing these stories. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate you. I'm looking forward to your next work. Me too. <laughs> I'm still working on it. All right. I swear. I swear. Yeah. All, All right, right, Adrian. Uh, I will talk to you again soon. Bye bye. All right. Bye. That's Adrian Miller. He is fantastic. His book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet The Story of the African Americans Who Have Fed Our First Families. I think you'll find it really delightful and insightful uh, to learn about these lost histories, these lost stories of people who were working for the White House and making sure that things were happening uh, in a way that worked out. And just incredible stories. Go get the book is what I'm saying. Okay, that's it for today. I'm back again actually on Monday with a great guest, John McWhorter, who's written a book about uh, black English vernacular. We studied together at Stanford, or he was my teacher at Stanford, I guess I should say. And I'll be talking to him at Monday at the regular time at 5 p.m. Eastern. That's it for today, guys. My name is Heidi DeRoe. This is The Mixed Experience. Thanks for joining me, and I'll talk to you again next week. Ciao. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.